Okay. It's a pleasure to see you all today for Halloween. Namaskar, welcome one and all. Let's start with some Mangala shlokas to Lord Bhairava, who is a terrifying form of... And, and here's Lord Bhairava right here. <laughs> Caught you on off time. <laughs> There's Holly. Like a, like a yogini or a dakini that attends the retinue of Lord Bhairava and Markali. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about that wild-haired Lord Bhairava who dwells in the cremation ground, who wanders about with the black dog, surrounded by a flock, sometimes of yoginis, you know, wild-haired, screaming, banshee-type figures, and sometimes of yogis, like ascetics who are practicing in the cremation ground with him, and often wild animals. So there's this character in South Asian spirituality that we're going to talk about today, Bhairava, and more importantly, what he represents in a philosophical sense beyond the mythological depictions of a fellow who lives outside the pale of society, who's kind of a, a fringe figure who dwells in the cremation ground with dogs and snakes and jackals and other unseemly things. So we'll talk so we'll about today. And in fact, much of today's lecture is actually themed around Lord Bhairava. I'll say more of that in, a, in just a little bit. But let me introduce what we're going to do today for Halloween. Just a few kind of places I'd like to go in today's lecture. Now, above all, I want to tell you ghost stories. That's the thing I'm most excited to do today. I'd like to tell you a few ghost stories. First, from the Ramakrishna Vivekananda lineage. I'd like to talk to you about times when Ramakrishna Paramahansa met ghosts and how he dealt with that. I also want to talk about Ramakrishna's guru, Totapuri, and how he dealt with one specific ghost incident, which I think is quite cool. Um, then we'll talk a little bit about the young disciples of Sri Ramakrishna post Sri Ramakrishna's death, how they um, moved into a haunted house and some stuff about that. And then maybe if there's time, an anecdote. I'll tell you a little bit about my run-in with the ghosts. And maybe, maybe we'll talk a little bit in that about cremation grounds and why we practice in cremation grounds. So that's like one part of the lecture that I want to do. And I'm probably going to save all of these ghost stories for the end. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit about encounters with yogic encounters with ghosts. I feel like that could be a History Channel special or something. Yogis and ghosts. I, I don't know. So we'll talk about that towards the end of the lecture. In the middle of the lecture, we'll talk a little bit about Tantra and particularly the cremation ground rituals that are featured in Tantra. So why is it that yogis, both Buddhist and Hindus, are practicing in cremation grounds? What is it about meditating and doing puja in a cremation ground? How does that help one sadhana? And, and where did it start? When did it start? What's that all about? We'll talk a little bit about that. Kapalikas, Akhoris, etc. You know? um, particularly because Bhairava and Makali, especially in her smashan form, are cremation ground figures. So Makali, for instance, um, her Gayatri mantra, which is the mantra that we use to bring the energy of that deity into one's immediate awareness. So when we chant a Gayatri mantra, we're inviting that deity and the energy of that deity to illumine the mind. Now, as you know, various deities are not different beings. They're rather many ways of looking at one no-thing or one principle, Satchit Ananda Brahman or Satchit Ananda Shiva, which, as you know, all of you are Vedanta veterans, non-dual veterans, as you know, is the very self that you right now are. It's already your immediate essence nature, here and now. It always was, always will be, and even now is your essence nature. So that essence nature that the Buddha would not affirm in positive terms, nor deny, that essence nature, with Abrahamic, which Abrahamic traditions call the soul or the spirit, which the yogic traditions called Purusha or Sakshi, which the Vedantic traditions called Atman, or which the Tantric traditions called Shiva, that one is the same one that expresses itself in a myriad of forms. You know, So Makali then is a specific 
a way of interacting with that same formless absolute. However, the flavor of Makali, insofar as it's such an Ananda Brahman itself, none other, the flavor is a particular flavor that's unique to Makali. So when we chant the Gayatri mantra, that mantra that invokes the presence of Makali, we're saying, Makali, thou who art none other than the formless absolute, thou who art such, a, such an Ananda Brahman itself, thou who art the self of myself, please illumine my mind. And interestingly enough, that Gayatri mantra makes reference to the cremation ground. So the Gayatri mantra is as follows. And I'll chant a kind of opening mantra in a bit also. But the Gayatri mantra for Makali is Kring Kalikaye Vidmahe Smashana Vasinye Dimahi Tanno Ghore Prachodayat Om. And even if you didn't know what any of those words meant, the vibe, particularly for those amongst you who are sensitive to it, is unmistakable. It's a spooky vibe. It's sometimes an eerie vibe. It's sometimes a challenging vibe. And for many of you, I know, intoxicated with love for the Divine Mother, it's a thrilling vibe. Because the words are not so much as important as the sounds, the Sanskrit phonetic values around those words. And we talked about that last week, the four levels of the word. We talked about the Vaikari Vak, the spoken word. We talked about the Madhya Vak, the mental imprint of that spoken word. Then we talked about the Pashanti Vak, which is that deeper vibe that's even below the thought form attributed to that word. And then we talked about the Paravak, that supreme primordial vibration that is perhaps silence itself, which is the very substance of all words, all thoughts, all vibes. You know? So this mantra, this Gayatri mantra, when you hear it, it works on all these levels. The articulate sound itself, which you're hearing now through your Zoom screen, perhaps kind of patchy because, as I said earlier, the spookiest thing about my Halloween is how patchy the internet has been over the last two hours of coming together. <laughs> but uh, be that as it may, you hear from your computer the articulate sounds that we're making, you know, but underneath that are thought forms associated with those sounds, perhaps from their meaning. So those of you who understand the Sanskrit meanings, which we'll expound on in a bit, you will hear in the mind, the corresponding images as well, beneath the sounds. And then, even if you don't know the meanings, you're still able to access that Pashanti Vak, that level of pure vibe or pure archetypical energy that comes with the mantra. And underneath that, and in and throughout all of that, is consciousness itself, here called Paravak, the primordial word, as John would say, the word that was with God, the word that was God, that is God, right? So um, let's hear that mantra again, the Gayatri mantra, and let's unpack its meaning. Kreem Kalikaye Vidmahe Smashana Vasinye Dimahi Tanno Ghore Prachodayat Om. Keyword Gore. Like kind of like gore almost. I know that English and Sanskrit share a lot of roots. For instance, like yoga, yuk in yoga is the same as to yoke in English. So I know that they share a lot of roots. Like uh, for instance, video, vidya in Sanskrit, which means knowledge, is the same as video to see, right? So I know there are all these like roots that are shared. So I don't know if gore and gora have something to do with one another. Maybe not, you know, language is tricky like that, but it certainly sounds like it. So I thought somewhere today, I'm going to make a slasher film reference. Maybe this is the moment, I don't know. But so gore means the terrifying one, the awe-inspiring, terrifying one, the terrible one. Tanno gore, she's being called, you know, in the kind of vocative sense, gore. She's been called that one who is terrifying. Come, come, thou who dwells, Vasinye, 
in the smashana, in the cremation ground. Smashana vasinye dimahi. Illumine my mind, O thou terrible one, who dwellest amidst the funeral pyres of the cremation ground. That's kind of the vibe of that mantra. Why would you want such a thing? Why would you want to invite terror? Why would you want to invite the imagery of a cremation ground into your immediate experience? Well, hopefully by the end of this lecture, we'll know why. Okay, so I think we'll talk a little bit about the cremation ground with regards to Lord Bhairava and his alter ego, Bhairavi or Makali. Um, and that'll be the second part of the lecture. Notice we haven't even started. So now the first part of the lecture, this is where I'm going to make an entry, is going to be about fear itself. Before we even can start talking about Bhairava and Kali, before we can even start talking about the ghost stories that we want to talk about today, let's actually take up the topic of fear itself. You know, welcome, Amanda G. What is fear? And in what sense is fear valuable for spiritual life? You know? And now the reason I want to ask that question is because today's lecture in three parts is actually uh, premised off of a Mangala Shloka. So allow me to be a bit academic and nerdy with you for a moment, just to kind of tell you what the thinking is behind the structure of this lecture. Um, before Shema Raja begins his commentary on the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, Shema Raja, as you know, is that uh, tantric adept from Kashmir, who was the disciple of the great Abhinavagupta. If you've studied Kashmir Shaivism or non-dual tantra in any sense, uh, the name Abhinavagupta, you will encounter it. You know, Abhinavagupta is to Tantra what, I don't know, Chuck Berry is to lock, rock and roll or something. He kind of created it. <laughs> so um, Abhinavagupta, he is a systematizer. Above all, he's a harmonizer. So he takes a vast tradition, a vast literary tradition, a pan-Indian tradition called Tantra, and he systematizes it into his text, his masterpiece, Tantra Loka, which was so complex that he had to write it three times. Tantra Loka, then Tantra Sara, and then like that. And he just got, kept essentializing because there was so much in there. Oh, beautiful. But Kashmir is where Abhinavagupta lived. His master, Somananda, not sorry, it's not Somananda. His master, Lakshmanagupta, lived in Kashmir. His masters from other lineages, like Shambhunata and, and Puti Raja, I believe, they all lived in Kashmir. And his disciple, Shema Raja, also lived in Kashmir. So there was a series of Kashmiri tantric adepts who contributed so much to the tradition by writing commentaries on principal text within the tantric tradition. Now, we cannot avoid talking a little bit about tantra in today's discussion. In fact, a lot a bit about tantra because Makali and Lord Bhairava are central figures in the tantric tradition. Okay, tantric tradition is a kind of orientation to spiritual life that is not at all unique to Hinduism. It's there in Buddhism. It starts within Shaivism and quickly spreads to Buddhism from Shaivism, being after all Himalayan provinces and everyone's neighbors up there. Um, and then it spreads into Islam as well. It spreads into Vaishnavism. It spreads into Jainism. And there are certain forms of Abrahamic faiths that are highly tantric, like Western ceremonial magic, for instance, has a lot of that tantric influence in it as well. So Tantra is not a particular tradition. It's a kind of orientation to spiritual life that is common to many any world traditions. In any case, Abhinavagupta and his disciple, Shema Raja, contributed so much to this tradition by writing commentaries. Now, Tantra, by that, by that word, is meant a type of book. So Tantra refers to a specific genre of literature that emerged in South Asian spirituality, maybe around the 5th or 6th century AD, though the tradition is certainly much older than that, probably pre-Vedic, 
you know, it probably existed before the Mohenjo-Daro Harappan civilization in the Indus Valley. It is, after all, an indigenous kind of folk culture that perhaps was flourishing in the south more than in the Vedic north. Lots of theories can be kind of posited about when Tantra, where Tantra, who Tantra, not interested right now. I'm only interested insofar as Shema Raja wrote a commentary on the Vignana Bhairava. Now the Vignana Bhairava, some people say it emerged in the 5th or 6th century AD. More likely it emerged in 800 or 900 AD because we do have a companion text called the Swabodha Manjari that's very much like the Vignana Bhairava. And that text we know emerged in like 800 something. So 9th century, AD, right? So Vignana Bhairava was probably its predecessor predecessor, but not by that much, probably. Who knows? Scholarship differs on this point. Anyway, Vignana Bhairava is somewhat of an atypical text in the tantric tradition because most tantric tantric manuals offer elaborate pujas and elaborate practices, whereas the Vignana Bhairava Tantra doesn't really do that. Instead, it offers us a bunch of very simple, dare I say sometimes simplistic practices for entering into a samadhi state or something even deeper than a samadhi state, an immediate recognition of your own essential nature as Shiva, as formless awareness. And the practices are as innocuous as staring at a patch of sunlight fallen on the floor or spinning around in a circle and then falling down on the floor and you know meditating on that ensuing sense of dizziness. Just cute childlike practices like this, but they're incredibly deep. Although they seem on the surface to be very simple, there's so much depth. And by the way, we are studying that text. So on Thursday nights, we do have a class. We're doing verse by verse on that text. And so those of you who have been coming to the Thursday night talk, sorry that this is somewhat, you know, week one for you. I know we're like 28 or something weeks in. So, <laughs> but it's nice to refresh sometimes, right? So the Vingana Bhairava offers this battery of like some, some say 112 different techniques, but much less. 112 teachings, but much less techniques actually, but a lot, still a lot. Anyway, Shema Raja writes a commentary on the Vingana Bhairava. Remember, Shemaraja is writing in like 1100s, like early 1100s, late 1000s. So this is kind of like 10th century, 11th, sorry, 11th century. Yeah, Thursday night group is hemp smokers. No, the internet won't really understand that reference. It's, it's when spiritual people come together, it's kind of like, like a marijuana circle. Not actually. I mean, maybe for some of you actually, but it's like the sense of I'll take a drag and then I'll pass it over to you. And then you'll take a drag in that sense. Yeah, <laughs> because it's just getting inebriated off. Thursday nights is so cool because we look at tantras. We actually study like actual tantras, not from secondary sources, but we take up the Sanskrit and we do a word by word Sanskrit analysis of tantras. And the one we're doing now is the VBT, the Vignana Bhairava. Anyway, all of this to say, Shemaraja writes a commentary and he, he analyzes the first 20 or so verses from his philosophical point of view. So he gives us a kind of non-dual reading of the first 20 or so verses of the Vignana Bhairava Tantra, first 23 verses, actually. Now, Swami Lakshmanju, whose translation is widely popular, he's premising his commentary off of Shemaraja's commentary. So today's lecture is actually premised off of Shemaraja's Mangala Shloka to that commentary to the Vignana Bhairava Tantra. What is a Mangala Shloka? It's a kind of traditional invocation to God and Guru before beginning a text. So you always start an Indian spiritual classic by first honoring your guru slash God. So typically, this is an opportunity for the author to demonstrate their intellect and their mastery over the Sanskrit language by doing a little bit of wordplay. So for instance, Shankara, when he opens his Aparokshana Bhuti, because his guru's name is Govinda Pada, he's able to say in that Mangala Shloka, salutations to Hari, Shri Hari Paramanandam, Upadeshtaram Ishwaram, Vyapakam Sarvaloka Anam, Karanam Tam Namamyaham. 
And we just had a class on that Mangla Shloka also. But those who came to that class will see so much non-dual theory is packed into just that statement. And in the beginning, he's giving a salutation to Hari, who is, who is no, no other than Brahman, right? We know because of the rest of the verse, we know that this Hari is indeed that non-dual Brahman. But not only that, Hari is a reference to Vishnu. His guru's name is Govinda, which is another name of Vishnu. So Shankara is in one verse able to honor his guru. He's able to honor God. And he's able to offer his entire philosophy in a seed form, which would later be expounded over 150 or so verses in the text proper. Isn't that brilliant? I am excited about Mangla Shlokas. I feel like there isn't enough literary attention given to Mangla Shlokas. They're phenomenal feats of literature, you know, like the, the most profound limer, limericking leprechaun could not keep up with the wordplay that's going on in these Mangla Shlokas. Now, of the Mangla Shlokas in the world, one is my particular favorite, my special favorite. And that's the one we're going to talk about now. Shema Rajas. Comment, uh, Mangla Shloka that begins his commentary to the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. It's in three verses. And in each one, he has a little bit of wordplay on the name Bhairava. Bhairava is, as we said earlier, a fierce form of Lord Shiva. He's very terrifying. He's got fangs. He's black skinned or dark blue skinned. His hair is sometimes made of fire, or at the very least, his hair is long and disheveled and matted. Um, he's often covered with ash. He eats out of a skull bowl. That's kind of his trademark thing. He walks around with a skull bowl and he eats out of it. He drinks out of a skull bowl. Oftentimes you'll see him holding a bowl of blood. Hint, hint. The lecture where we talked about the bowl of blood is tantric aesthetic rapture, you know? So anyway, he's often holding a bowl of blood and he's often accompanied by either a, a flock of crazy wild-haired banshees or a flock of yogis. So he's got a retinue. You know, and, and he's accompanied by people who are like him, who are perhaps imitating him. And also his totem animal is a black dog. Now in America, in the West, people, their dogs are like their family members. The dog is in the house. That's crazy to me. Growing up, I, like a dog in the house is like, wait, what, 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 oh my God. Dogs are outdoor animals, right? But in America, no, we have dogs in the house and we're very close. So in America, dogs have a different kind of cultural role. They're like very beloved. And in many cases, they get better treatment than most of the world, right? So it's very good karma to be born a dog in America. Maybe not. I feel like a lot of American dog moms and dog dads are kind of like um, Munchausen-ish. They're a little too, too obsessed with their, with their dogs. <laughs> their animals will be okay. But, you know, <laughs> oh no, baby, no, they'll be okay. They're, they're, they've evolved to handle much worse. <laughs> but anyway, in India, that's not the case. In India, um, dogs are kind of like outdoor animals. At, 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 at best, they're like guarding your house. But typically, they're just like these feral things that wander about and eat out of trash cans. And they're not, they're not really seen as like man's best friend there. They're loved and tolerated, but from a distance, like, you know, they're kind of seen as like, ugh, like vermin almost. They're like just out there wandering about the streets. So Bhairava, he's got a dog. His best friend is a dog. So he, everywhere he goes, the dog will follow him. It's a black dog too. So not only are dogs already frowned upon, but black dogs, cremation ground dogs. So maybe more of like a jackal or like a dingo or like some coyote or some animal like that. That's his totem. So this Bhairava, ash besmeared, Naked. Oh, I forgot to mention, he's often naked and he's often wrapped with serpents. So he's got like a serpent belt. Bujanga Bhushana, he's called, the one who is belted with serpents. He's got serpents all over him. He's got a dog with him. He's surrounded by like unseemly people. He's dirty. He's got matted hair and he wanders about outside the pale of normal society. He's like far beyond the pale of society. He's like a fringe figure. Now, of course, this probably reminds some of you of Jesus. 
He's got a profound Jesus vibe. He seems to be friend to the lowly and the wicked and the despised and the insane and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Like he assembles this kind of motley crew, if you will. There, rock and roll reference, done. He assembles to himself this kind of motley crew of figures. He's a marginal figure, to say the least. Okay, so Bhairava, that's who he is mythologically. But that's not what he means. Um, it's not what we mean in this philosophical sense of using the word Bhairava. Okay, so we're going to expound on that a little bit. Anyway, Shemara just says three things about Bhairava that I'd like to explore in today's class. The first is he calls Bhairava that state of fear that one feels when one feels like they're going to remain in the dream state forever. So it's, it's the fear of remaining in the dream state. That's the first definition of Bhairava. Bhairava is not a fanged naked figure in the cremation ground. That's just a symbol. That's just a metaphor. Who Bhairava really is, according to Shema Raja, is that fear itself that we all feel regarding our predicament here in the wheel of birth and death called Sangskara. You know, so here in Sangskara, that fear that we feel being tossed to and fro by fear and craving, by our reactionary patterns, by our Sangskaras, by our, um, sorry, Samsara, I meant to say, Sangsara. Um, but by our sangskaras, you know, in sangsara, that fear is Bhairava himself. That's the first verse. The second verse, and I'll expound more in just a little bit. The second verse is Bhairava. He is Bhairava, that one whose roar is the death of death. So he is the fear of the ego because he's the one that kills the ego. The ego is the only thing that can die. So once the ego is dead, you're immortal. So Bhairava is that roaring, terrifying one whose roar is the death of death. Bhairava. And the third verse is Bhairava is the Lord of the flock of yogis. He's the master and teacher of the Lord. He's the Lord, master and teacher of that band of wild haired yogis who are ultimately we call free, free souls. Avadutas, really. Those of you who know that word, Avadutas. So he's like the Lord of the Avadutas. Okay. So those three verses are kind of the template for today's class. So I just wanted to place that in front of you as the kind of background citation for the way this class is going to flow. So let's start. Done. Gra <laughs> 40 minutes. Done. We did all the preamble. Okay, let's start. I'm going to start with actually the uh, Aghora Mantra. So Lord Shiva has five mantras. Thank you, Tara. I'm going to start with the Aghora Mantra. And then I'm going to do a verse out of the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra about Bhairava. So if you know the Aghora Mantra, Aghore Pyo, Tagore Pyo, you're welcome to join me. We'll inhale to Om now. Om. Maghorebhyo taghorebhyo ghora ghora taribhyascha sarvataha sarva sarvebhyo namaste rudra rupebhyaha Om Bhaiya Sarvam Ravayati Sarvago Vyapakokile Itti Bhairava Shabdasya Santato Charanachivaha Santato Charanachivaha Om Shanti 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 Om Salutations to all the energies of Lord Shiva. Salutations to the terrifying, violent energies. Salutations to the energies that are not so terrifying and violent. Salutations to those energies that are both terrifying and yet not terrifying. Om, salutations to all the three energies of the universe. May they all be propitious and helpful to us in spiritual life. Om, salutations to Lord Bhairava, who is himself the fear that resounds 
awe-inspiringly in all things, as all things, by constantly remembering and by silently repeating unceasingly the name of Bhairava, one verily becomes Bhairava themselves. Om, peace, peace, peace. Namaskar. Happy Halloween. As we said in the opening verse, the goal is to become Bhairava. So my hope for all of us is that by the time we get to the end of the lecture, in about 40 minutes or so, you will have some sense of what it means to be Bhairava. Okay, then we'll have our Q&A. So the goal today is not just to go through the lecture as we've outlined, but to actually become Bhairava, to ourselves be like Bhairava. And hopefully we'll understand why that's even desirable by the end of all of this. Okay, starting with the first point then. Bhairava as fear. Fear of what? Well, fear of everything, really. Bhairava represents that state of fear which alone motivates us to seek deeper truths in life. So perhaps the scariest story I can tell you today is the Buddha story, the story of the inevitability of old age, sickness, death, and the inevitability, this is worse, of rebirth to continuously, unceasingly, in a Sisyphean-like fashion, revisiting those three things. So unceasingly revisiting old age, sickness, birth, death, etc. So there's no way out. This is, this is the real terror. The real terror is not even suicide can save you. If you get particularly frightened, you might want to opt out of the tragedy and the calamity that is most of life. Maybe those of us who are comfortable in an air-conditioned room, who are currently not in the midst of grieving a lost loved one, who are currently not in between jobs struggling to feed however many children or dependents we might have, who are currently not dealing with a life-debilitating illness, maybe this point is not fully appreciated. But it's only a matter of time, dare I say it, until this point will be fully appreciated. This life is terrifying. It's terrifying because everything you love can be taken away from you in an instant, and it will be taken away from you. That's the real horror story that we have to start off with. If you deny this, you're delusional. And then when those things do happen, you'll suffer all the more. So the Buddha's first point is to say, look, I know you don't want to talk about it at Thanksgiving dinner table. Okay. This is not a kind of kosher conversation you want to have at Thanksgiving dinner. I know that you push all of your old people into homes so you don't have to look at the decay and humiliation that is old age. I know you cram all your sick people into hospitals and then turn away so you don't have to deal with the inevitability of SARS and bird flu and typhoid and uh, malaria and dengue and Zika and COVID and insert names of all the other terrible things that have happened to people. And most importantly, we don't say death. We say your goldfish has moved on to a better place. No, your goldfish straight up died and your mom flushed it in the toilet. Sorry to be so goth with you, but that's the Buddha's first onslaught is to kind of tear asunder the veil of euphemisms that keeps the reality of life away from us only to make that reality all the more offensive and all the more unbearable when it does eventually pierce that euphemism and like a flood wash into your house in the middle of the night. You know, So at best, you're keeping out a cold, but there are cracks in the house. And it's like a chill that you can't quite keep out. That's the predicament of being in this wheel of birth and death of being in samsara. Old age is a fact for you and your loved ones and for your possessions. Change is a fact, meaning all that's good will go away. And death is a fact. And so you might think in the midst of all of this, I can't handle it, right? Many people, I think in, someone was saying yesterday, who was saying? Someone was saying that in the year 2021, um, India saw the most suicides of all time. And a significant number of those were young people, people under the age of 18. 
right? It's horrible. It's a horrible statistic to see that young people in the prime of their life are choosing to end it all. Why? Why is it that all over the world, people are committing suicide? It's a very important thing to consider. You didn't think I was going to be this dark and real on Halloween, did you? You were like, okay, he's going to be frivolously, frivolously creepy. No, no, no. Let's be actually creepy here. There are, in a very serious sense, people all over the world who just cannot bear the terror of life. And you know, this isn't just the person who's suffering from cystic fibrosis who needs euthanasia because the pain is unbearable. This isn't just the person who feels like a failure because they can't feed their family because of the recession in their country. This isn't just the person escaping political oppression. This is very likely the person just up the road from you in uh, San Francisco who goes to a very competitive school that is now choosing to end her life because she didn't get into Stanford, you know. There's a school, I forget what it's called, but it's a feeder school for Stanford. And it's got a ridiculously high suicide rate because all those kids who don't get into Stanford, who watch all of their friends going to Stanford, feel so horrible about that, that they actually decide to end their lives. Isn't that crazy? No, this isn't Stanford's fault. Is it, it isn't anybody's fault. It's just the inherent terror of being in this world, right? And I just want to, I'd want to drive this point in like, properly, that it's so terrifying that it drives people to the brink of and well past the brink of suicide. This world is so terrifying that people would rather kill themselves than face it. Can you imagine how terrifying this world has to be for death to be less terrifying? Look, even Shakespeare's Hamlet couldn't bring himself to kill, kill himself, right? He was terrified of the unknown unknowns. To sleep perchance to dream. And Emily, I think, will do an incredible rendition. Emily's an incredible actor, by the way. I didn't, I didn't know until I saw her pretend to be an atheist and talk down religion. And I know Emily, so I know how good of an acting job that was. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is so believable. And also so personable. I was so obsessed with that little clip that Emily put on, uh, on Instagram. So Emily will probably do a Shakespearean thing for us later, maybe. To be or not to be, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Like Emily will do that bit, maybe. I don't know, maybe she will. Maybe she won't. But anyway, um, remember Shakespeare's Hamlet was driven to the brink of suicide. He was oppressed, oppressed by um, his own mind. And he even says, right, in that play that I could be bound in a nutshell and still call myself king of infinite space. He, he concedes that the mind as a meaning-making machine can tell any narrative about any event and thereby make it livable. He knows that. Nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. He knows that. He knows that he's thinking himself into this hole. Um, and he's terrified by the mental prison that he's constructed. It's a very relatable situation, actually. We make mountains out of molehills. We turn our life into a living nightmare because we cannot control our own power of linguistic representation. You know, see also lecture on Makali's garland or linguistic representation lecture. What was, I think it was the bowl of blood lecture, right? See also the bowl of blood lecture. Um, but anyway, he is so terrified by the predicament of his life ultimately self-created, um, that he wants to kill himself. But he's also terrified of killing himself because he feels like um, the unknown unknown is far more terrifying than the known terror. So better the devil you know, right? To sleep perchance to dream. You know, maybe if he kills himself, maybe he'll just end up in a nightmare. You know, the funny thing is Shakespeare didn't understand any Buddhism. He didn't understand any Jainism. He didn't understand any South Asian philosophy because he would have been right. He would know that, no, 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 he's right. If he kills himself, he will just be reborn again. That's the predicament. The really scary thing about life, the truly scary thing about life is that you cannot escape this terror except via spiritual liberation, except via moksha. There's no way out because of reincarnation. Now, um, 
I could spend a little while today talking about reincarnation and motivating it as a theory. In fact, it might actually be a very valuable philosophical piece for this lecture as a whole, but just kind of considering time, I'm just going to very briefly um, just kind of sketch it. Okay. But maybe in the Q and a, someone might take me up on a, on a more thorough debate because I'm happy to defend reincarnation in a bit more of a kind of robust way for now. Let's just sketch it. We'll just sketch it. So um, this is the theory in brief. When a chicken, <laughs> nice Josh, howdy. When a chicken hatches amongst, sorry, when a, when a duck, when a duck hatches among chickens, so it's with other chicks and it's being raised by a mother hen, it knows instinctively to go to the water. Why? Or when a chick hatches, it knows instinctively without being thought, taught, sorry. T's are difficult sometimes, but for, for, uh, for this language, this language group, taught. So without being taught, the chick knows to fear the hawk. How? How does the chick know to fear the hawk? How does the duck, even though raised amongst chicks with a mother hen, how, did, how, did, how does it know to go to the water? And here we'll say instinct. It's instinct. But as Swami Vivekananda said beautifully, naming is not explaining. You can't just call something instinct and have it be done at that. It's not really explaining that phenomenon. You know? So what is instinct? What exactly is hereditary? Hereditary. I can't say that word. What exactly is it? So now let's look at another example, a piano player. You might call a piano player instinctive. Like maybe a piano player is playing by second nature, right? You say, oh, she's so beautiful. She plays as if it's like her instinct, her second nature or something like that. What do we mean when we say that? Well, we mean she's practiced a lot. Any piano player who's beautifully playing, who can play without thinking about playing, who can sip tea and be engaged in a conversation while playing, is probably someone who through a lot of repetition and a lot of muscle memory has gotten to that place where she doesn't need to think about it anymore. She can just kind of, dare I say, unconsciously go through her scales and play her Mozart, et cetera. So in this case, we know that it's only through repeated action, it's only through practice that one comes to acquire this thing called nature. So when we say that the piano player is by nature a good player, when we say that she instinctively plays well, what we mean to say is that behind that word instinct or nature is years and years and years, if not li a lifetime worth of repetition. Do you see? So theory is just this. If someone is born into this world and from a very young age demonstrates a natural proclivity for music, and we know that only such a thing can come about through repetition, and we also know further that that repetition was not carried out in this life, given that Mozart's like three years old or whatever, we know that it must have been carried out in some previous life. So the scientific explanation for why people are instinctually one way and other people are instinctually another way, the scientific explanation, here I'm using science in the truest sense of the word as a rational process of inquiry. Um, the, the real explanation here would be, well, given what we know about instinct formation and nature formation, repetition is required. If that repetition is not seen in this life, it must have occurred in previous lives. And so we can say there must have been lives behind Mozart's genius at a young age. There must have been lives behind your love for spirituality. There must be some kind of momentum there from previous births that is culminating in the way that you choose to live now. So your nature, your personality is determined by forces far beyond your physical birth in this time scale, right? And if that's true, if there were lives before this one, there must also be lives after this one. In fact, you can even use a simple logical argument here. If something starts, it must end. So if something ends, it must start. That's true for almost everything else in the world. Why should it not be true for your life? 
This is what the Bhagavad Gita is, how the Bhagavad Gita actually argues for reincarnation. Just with this logical kind of point, the counterpositive, you know, if something starts, it must end. And if something ends, it must start. So if your life had a start, it ought to have an end. But if it has an end, it must also have another start. And so reincarnation then, in brief, is asserted. I need to kind of posit it in this lecture to really kind of exaggerate how terrifying this predicament is. Okay, because if I get what I want, there's all likelihood that I won't come to want it anymore. I'll get bored of it and I'll want some other stuff. So getting what I want is a unique way to suffer in this world, you know, because I'll get bored of it. It will dissatisfy me. And not getting what I want is, as we all know, another way to suffer in this world. So catch 22. I get what I want. I suffer. I don't get what I want. I suffer. Whether I get what I want or not, I get old. I get sick. I die. My loved ones get old. They get sick. They die. All the pleasures and joys in this life, they come and they go. They're transient. And for them, people live and die and kill one another. You know, um, it's quite the predicament. It's quite the predicament. And periods of political peace are rapidly um, torn asunder by the maniacal egos and ambitions of a few people in society. You know, so this is a fact. This is a fact that's been true always. It's been true in the past. It's true now and it'll be true in the future. So in Karma Yoga, Swami Vivekananda offers something like a principle of conservation of energy with regards to the evil in the world. So, you know, energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be transformed. Swami Vivekananda says eerily something similar about evil. You cannot create more evil in the world, nor can you diminish the amount of evil that's currently in the world. If you whack a mole in one place, it will only pop up in another. Do you know what I mean to say? If you solve a political situation in one country, some similar political situation will crop up in another. And on and on it goes, whacking this one mole and whacking that one mole and in so doing, incurring 10 more moles popping out of the little holes. Wow, did you appreciate that rhyme scheme? I did. So it seems like we can't really diminish the net amount of evil in the world, though we all of us act under the illusion that we can. You know, we do all these works thinking that we're actually making the world better, but all of our good intentions are also, you know, doctrine of double effect, perhaps causing unintended consequences that do evil. So Swami Vivekananda offers that very riveting example. You might think that I'm doing good in talking to you, in conveying this, but actually while I'm talking to you, entire civilizations of microorganisms are being wiped out by the projectile force of my breath, <laughs> right? As a human being, I consume I consume every moment of my life I'm consuming. So I'm rendering entire civilizations asunder by my very being here. And that's inevitable. It's inevitable. It's part of what it means to be here is to consume, is to cause unintended evil, even in the name of good intentions. So what Swamiji is suggesting here, Swami Vivekananda that is, is that you can't diminish evil. You can only punt it around. So you can get rid of evil in your house, but the ball will be punted into someone else's yard. Or you can end evil on the physical plane, but that evil will just manifest itself on the mental plane. For instance, you can ensure that your country has plentiful Starbucks and running water and all of that. And that's good and ought to be done. But then you'll just see an increase in depression rates, right? Isn't that, isn't that something that's quite common in like very developed first world nations? With, with every possible amenity, people still aren't happy. It's not that the suffering in that place has reduced. It's just become more refined. It's no longer physical suffering from a lack of clean water, which much of the world still suffers, but it's now psychological suffering. This isn't to say we shouldn't try our best to make the world as good as it could possibly be for people. It's simply pointing out that there will not come this utopia, this moment when all evil is eradicated totally. The sum total of evil, like the sum total of energy in the world, is only transformed, never eradicated. It's only moved about from one place to another, never wholly dealt with. 
Now I'm speaking on a macrocosmic scale. I'm speaking in a societal sense, but let's kind of zoom into the individual in a microcosmic sense. That's true. Also, haven't you noticed if your work life is fine, your health might be ruined. You know, meaning you spend a lot of time in the office, making sure you're doing well at work, but in so doing, you've ruined your health. Or you might stay home and rest and recuperate, but now you find all your colleagues have overtaken you and they're getting the promotions. So your work life sucks. Or you do have a great routine. You're at the gym at 5 a.m. before you go to work and you're doing well at work, but your relationship is fucked. Your, your romance is, is, is going to the dogs. You're not spending enough time with your spouse or your wonderful partner. You bought the roses. You went out to dinner. You're doing great at work and your health is fine, but your kids hate you because now you have no time for them. You see, <laughs> So even in a microcosmic sense, uh, we just can't quite get everything right uh, in life. And you know what? Just as there are fanatical people who try to get everything right in a macrocosmic way, there are also those similarly fanatically minded people who are trying to get everything right in a microcosmic way. They feel like if every external factor of their life is sorted out, they will then be happy. So they spend all of their time and energy trying to bring everything in their life into the perfect equilibrium. And maybe they do succeed for a while. Then it all comes apart again. You see, No matter how many yogic animas you're doing or how many of the Shatkarmas you're doing out of Patanjali, sorry, not Patanjali, out of uh, Yogi, uh, what is it? What's his name? Hatha Yoga Pradipika. Who wrote that? I forget. Hatha Yoga Pradipika. Yogi, something, anyway. But uh, no matter how many of the Shatkarmas you're doing from the traditional Hatha Yoga system, no matter how many health diets you're doing, all of that stuff, terminal illness might come. No matter how good you are at work, a recession might come, you might lose your job, someone might be better. So you see, even in a microcosmic scale, the total evil, thank you, Swatma Rama. Yes, thank you. Yogi Rama? No, Yogi Rama is someone else. He wrote that book, Living with Himalayan Masters. So I got kind of mixed up there. Thank you. Um, so yeah, no matter how much we do for the world and for ourselves, really, and it's worth doing, by the way, I'm not saying you don't do these things. I'm just saying while doing these things, one must acknowledge the reality that we don't actually diminish the overall evil in one's life and in the world. By evil here, I just mean disease. I mean grief. I mean loss, all of that. Okay. So then what do we do? Now, some people realizing this have opted to end their lives. The terror of death, which Shakespeare's Hamlet balked at, is not quite so terrifying as the terror of life. But to this, the yogi says, that's a mistake because this is coming from an, a lack of understanding as to what reincarnation is. If you had a life before, you probably have a life after. Shakespeare's Hamlet is right to sleep perchance to dream. Because if you don't like this dream and you try to end it prematurely, what's just going to happen is you're going to enter another dream, perhaps a worse dream, a nightmare. You see, the net suffering in samsara never changes. That's the first point I have to make. Okay. So that's, the, that's why Shema Raja opens by saying, do you know what Bhairava is? Bhairava is this realization. It's the fear at realizing our predicament. That feeling of being intimidated by the existential despair of life. Why is this valuable? Because it's the start of any authentic spirituality. Anything short of this existential despair will always be some kind of ego-building, material-oriented spirituality. So even if it's in the name of spirituality, it will be just more of the same, more of trying to aggrandize one's ego, more of trying to align external things to be just the way we want it. You know? So instead of getting a Ferrari, now I want like a special mala bead necklace. You know? uh, it's the same kind of materialism. It's just given a kind of spiritual veneer. So instead of, I don't know, collecting money, I now want to collect yoga teacher 
training certificates or something like that. You see, it's the same impulse for bettering oneself, aggrandizing oneself, making the external world better, except via spiritual means. And even that ultimately comes apart sooner or later anyway. Okay. So when we realize this, when we realize that nothing we do in the external plane of our life can actually bring lasting satisfaction, when we realize that old age sickness and death are hounding us in each and every moment, expressing themselves as varied forms of psychological ills, when we realize that, we naturally feel terrified. And that's good. That terror is good. It's a wonderful terror. It's a terror at finally understanding what all of this is. And the Buddha he was, he, you know, Swami Tapasyananda, I think, said, Buddhism is a very serious tradition. To start it, you must realize that everything is suffering. <laughs> to even start Buddhist sadhana, you have to realize your predicament, which is you, as Mick Jagger said so beautifully, just can't get what you want. You can't always get what you want. Or as Mick Jagger also said, um, see, three rock and roll references. Are you proud of me? As Mick Jagger also said, uh, I can't get no satisfaction. You know, once you realize that, then only spiritual life can start can start. But realizing that is not always gentle. It's kind of terrifying. It's terrifying to realize that this world is not a safe place to be. I mean, ultimately it is, but for the ego, it's not. Okay. For the ego, it's not. The ego is not safe here. It is. And of course, the miracles people in the room are like, oh my God, stop being so pessimistic. No, it's the, this is the kingdom of heaven, man. It's like, okay. Okay. Absolutely speaking, you're right. But for the ego, that's not true. For the ego, this is a place of constant battle, constant struggle, constant anxiety, always trying to negotiate your position against and over others, you know? So the ego, it doesn't feel safe here. And if it did, we all wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't feel the need for spiritual life. We wouldn't be called to practice and to seek deeper solutions for life. You know, if the ego was safe and comfortable here, dare I say there would be no impetus for growth, no impetus for inquiry, for kind of deeper pursuits like spirituality. So the ego doesn't feel safe here. And once the ego recognizes fully that predicament, once we fully feel the fear of being in this world, ah, then spiritual life can begin. So do you see how disease, old age, sickness, death, losing loved ones, losing jobs is not only a given, but it's actually the only way that we can come to spiritual life. Barring like gentler forms of shaktipata and grace, the grace that most of us feel is the grace of losing a loved one, the grace of getting old, the grace of getting sick, the grace of depression, of anxiety. That's the grace. Why is it the grace? Because it brings us to spiritual life. It's the grace of God ultimately. So you see Bhairava, as God takes on a scary face, puts on a mask, as it were, to jolt us out of our comforting kind of, what do you call it? Um, torpor in order to pursue something better. Exactly. As, as Kalika is saying, suffering brings us closer to God. That's the lesson we're getting from the crucifix. You know, Jesus is bearing the suffering, but in so doing, he's telling us that suffering is not an obstacle to God. It's a means to God. It's one of the only ways actually that a person can deepen. So the driving it to four lanes would probably the, be the biggest thing. Yeah, drivers will leave widening the road. Oh, Bhairava, is that you? Lord Bhairava? <laughs> but uh, so it seems like um, that's the first thing that Shema Raja wants to say in his first of three verses. He's saying, well, Bhairava is the grace that one feels when one decides to pursue spiritual life, which is only when one feels adequately frightened. It reminds me of that scene in Star Wars where Yoda is about to train Luke and he's like, are you afraid? And Luke's like, no. And Yoda says, you will be. Hmm, you will be, right? You will be afraid. 
because this world will, will in one way or another scare you. Now, I'd like to impart here, I think, one framing that's quite, one kind of way of framing the world that's quite helpful here. If we expect the world to be full of old age, sickness, death, and loss, we won't be surprised when it inevitably happens. Do you see? Don't you notice that most of us pretend like that's not a given? We, we almost act outraged when our loved ones leave us, when we lose a job, when we get sick, right? Don't we get outraged when we get sick? How, how could this be happening to me? Don't you understand? I'm going to Burning Man tomorrow. How can I be sick? What do you mean I have to stay in because my COVID test was positive? Don't you know that tomorrow is Kali Puja? No, stay home, please. There are old swamis at the temple. Please don't come if you're sick. But no, the thing is, right? Like we feel so outraged and offended when we get sick as if we're not supposed to get sick ever. This is particularly bad for the new age folks because they think just because they chanted a few mantras or they have a few crystals, they're now like immortal, right? You did two animas and now you have the Divya Deha, the body of God, the Vajra Deha, the lightning body that will never get sick. Haha, <laughs> give it a few moments. Sorry, not to be a naysayer or anything. I know, I know, I know I probably don't understand your advanced yogic sciences that you've learned from indigenous practitioners, right? Okay, so I, I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> but this problem is particularly acute for the new agers because they feel like they're entitled, right? They're entitled to like longevity and really good health all the time. You know, these new agers these days feel like they're entitled to feeling happy all of the time. And they freak out if that's not the case, right? They freak out if the body gets a little ill, but it does get ill. The occasional cold is part of what it means to be a body. And the occasional terminal illness is a reality that most of us, I mean, cancer rates are going up. Anything could happen to anyone at any time, like see Stephen Hawking and muscle dystrophy, you know, can happen to anyone, anytime. Lou Gehrig's, whatever. All of these things, they're, they're a real possibility, but we always think they're happening to others, never to us. That's always someone else's problem, right? And that makes it far worse when it is us. It's, it's someone, it's my neighbor that's dealing with the loss of a loved one. You know, I read about on the news someone whose spouse was brutally murdered, but that's them, not me. It never happened to me, right? Not that we're wishing this upon anybody, but the understanding here is that whether you want it or not, whether you wish for it or not, it can come. Why not understand that now? See, that's, I think, the first lesson we're getting from Lord Bhairava. Why not understand now that some jolts in life are inevitable? Some loss is inevitable. Maybe for some more than others, but I think you can't objectively talk about suffering in that way. Everybody, subjectively speaking, probably suffers the same for different reasons. Some because of ill health, some because loss of a loved one, some because financial crisis, et cetera, et cetera. Some because of political oppression, some because of mental oppression, or all of the above, you know? Who knows? So anyway, if we understand that now, don't you think that that might change the way we feel when those things do eventually come about? We won't be so offended or so surprised anymore. So that's the first lesson. The first lesson is let's reframe our experience here. Let's stop expecting this world to be something it's not. Let's stop dressing up this world in so many veils and veils of euphemisms, especially the new age euphemisms that make this world seem like an unfailingly um, dependably peaceful place. It's not yet for the ego. It cannot be that for the ego, you know? And hopefully we'll explain why in a bit. Because, and we'll explain it now, the ego is premised upon body identity. You know, the ego believes itself to be this body. It, it wants to be somebody, you know? The ego always wants to be somebody. It believes itself to be this person. But there's one fact about the body and the mind. It's a kind of all pervasive fact about all matter. These things, body and mind, are constantly changing. 
So any kind of lasting happiness on the level of the body and on the level of the mind is not possible since physical states change inevitably as all things do and mental states change inevitably as all things do. So you can't hold on to your eye. You can't hold on to that feeling of physical exuberance you have after a particularly good yoga class, or in some cases, a particularly good anima. I'm anima, anima. I don't, I'm making fun of this because recently I've met people in my life whose entire spirituality consists of putting bamboo tubes up their butt. And I'm sure that's valuable. I'm sure that's got something to do with your overall journey. But to borrow a phrase from TikTok, um, sis, I don't think that is it. That ain't it, right? Like, okay, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it has something to do with the journey. But if that's what is called spirituality, we're missing out on a lot more. And here's the problem. If spirituality is premised upon physical and mental longevity and stability, it's ignoring the fact that nothing in matter can be that way. You know, nothing in prakriti can be fixed. The body and mind changes. Yeah, I'm always right. So like, there's a journey here, but I'm speaking to you from, you know, a certain standpoint, right? I'm in a certain mood tonight. So, you know, in some cases, I'm far more inclusive. I'm in a more tantric mood. Today, I feel like I'm kind of a Vedanta Buddhist mood. So I'm sorry. Okay, I'm going to be kind of, <laughs> it's Halloween. Let, let, let me have this. Let me have this. <laughs> Please, let me play. Anyway, so I'll be PC and like inclusive some other time. All right. <laughs> let me just be a little fiercer today. We just prayed to Bhairava for crying out loud. Look at that guy. You know, he's not going to become being, he's not going to be nice about your animals. Okay, look at him. <laughs> anyway so um if spirituality is premised on anything in the body and in the mind like perfect health or perfect mental equanimity those things can go away very quickly and they often do that's why the ego feels itself very threatened in this world because it's premising itself on that which is constantly shifting it's looking for permanence and stability in the only place where those things cannot be found in prakriti in the world of changing dynamic matter and by the way, the mind is a kind of matter too. In the yogic tradition, the mind is a subtle matter. It's sukshma sharira. It's a subtle kind of matter. So all matter, whether physical or subtle, whether bodily or mental, all of it is subject to the laws of prakriti, which is change, 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 decay, 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 things coming apart, things coming back together. So you can never find permanent lasting fulfillment here. Because the ego wants that, because I mean, by ego, I mean our, our feeling of personhood, because that's what we want. That's why we suffer. We want what ultimately we cannot have here. Fulfillment, lasting fulfillment. Once we realize that, then the quest for lasting fulfillment begins. And so spiritual life then, as you can see, is in every tradition, a kind of turning away from the changing and the impermanent and a turning towards that which is unchanging, permanent and real, which ultimately is beyond body, mind, ego. So the only thing that can be lasting, that can give genuine fulfillment is that which is not subject to a mind, body, ego world. So insofar as you want things in the world, and that's wonderful, that's part of our journey, but see, making some concessions. But insofar as you want some things in the world, um, there's going to be some inevitable suffering, especially when you do get those things, you know, only to have them taken away from you by the laws of time, space, and causality. So the moment you decide to stop wanting those things and instead want that which will fulfill, that which truly satisfies, which you might call God or spirit or soul or Atman or Paramatman or the no self or whatever. I can't really be defined because it's beyond, I mean, the mind. So when you want that thing, which is beyond the mind, which you know exists intuitively, then spirituality starts. But it's that fear, you see, it's that fear of the changing world, of the intimidating nature of time, space, and causality that moves you towards spiritual life. Swami Vivekananda says, religion begins in fear, ends in love. 
begins in fear and ends in love. So it starts with the fear of our predicament. Okay, so much for the first part of our lecture. So this is, by the way, the scariest part of the lecture. So, you know, if you want to let go of the hand of your spouse, now you can. Uh, they're losing circulation. Okay. <laughs> you can turn off your lights again if you're in the dark and you're like, no, Patrick, you're scaring me. You're scaring him, Patrick. You turn the light down. <laughs> Remember that SpongeBob episode where they're like, who's turning on and off the lights? And it's like, Nosferatu. <laughs> okay. So this world is really scary. That's it. That's the takeaway from the first part of the lecture. The world's really scary. And that's good. That's Bhairava. That's the Lord prompting us to go deeper to dive deep. So what should be our attitude? One, we should understand this about the world. And two, we should understand that there's an urgency there in our spiritual life. There's a tremendous urgency. Sri Ramakrishna would say time and time again, remember death, remember death. Because if you don't remember death, you will think that you have all the time in the world. I'll meditate tomorrow is the refrain that all of us hear from our egos. You know, I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow is a freer day. Today, I've got all these chores and I've got my job. And today, I, I, I think maybe if I slept a little earlier today, then I'll wake up a little earlier tomorrow. No, ended up I slept earlier. I woke up the same time anyway. So now the point is that the refrain of the ego is I'll do it tomorrow. But that's only because the ego believes, it truly believes that it has infinite tomorrows. And not only that, it believes that it will have the energy of youth in old age. Haven't you realized the tremendous hubris that the ego has to assert that? That it thinks in its old age, it would have the energy and exuberance of a youth and then it will do spiritual life. You see, the ego is smart enough to understand how difficult spiritual life is. It understands the tremendous effort required to meditate and bring the mind to a single point, to do puja and devote oneself with all of one's effective powers. The ego understands that. It just thinks that it will have that power in old age. As if once I'm retired, I'll have the energy for spiritual life. As if, right? As my guru often says, the, the older you get, the more meditation turns into napping. It's very difficult to meditate when you're older. You know, you think when you're an old man, old woman, old person, you're going to be a great meditator. Be careful. At that age, the mind has a tendency to kind of become soporphoric and you'll fall asleep. So my guru calls it fishing. Right? So if you think you'll do the most of your meditating, the bulk of your spiritual work later, you're in trouble because you might not have the same energy and alertness you do now later. And also you might not even have a later. This might be it, friends. This might be the last night we're together. You know, tomorrow could be the nuclear winter. I mean, I don't know, not to go back to the eighties, you know, with you and all, but it could be, I mean, there's always that possibility that tomorrow you wake up and everything's changed. The war has begun. That was certainly true for the people waking up to world war II. That was certainly true for the people waking up to World War I. That was certainly true for all the people who woke up to whatever other war they were a part of. Lord of the Rings, maybe, you know. There, Lord of the Rings reference done. One day you were asleep in the Shire, the next day you had to take the ring to Rivendell. You see, this could happen to us anytime. So given that, we must feel that urgency that can only come when we remember death, right? So that's another lesson. Once we know that like death and old age and sickness are inherent in this world, we won't be so offended when it does come. When it does eventually visit us, we'll be able to say, ah, I knew it, called it, um, saw this coming from a mile away. Not a big deal. Okay, I can relax into it. I'm not uniquely persecuted. By the way, I should say this. When we had our lecture on um, death, overcoming grief and death, you know, it was so interesting to see in the Q&A how many people were currently dealing with a loss and how many of them thought that they were the only ones. You know, when we lose someone, we often feel we're the only one in the world who's grieving. No, look at all these people in the room. Don't you think they're all sad about something? Don't you think they're all heartbroken about something? Look at them. Everyone in this room is hurt, has been hurt, and will be hurt again. 
You see, look at these people, everyone broken in some sense, right? In the ego sense, I mean, like we're all of us hurt. And so it's not unique to us. That's another thing we should understand that like we shouldn't feel personally singled out by the universe when something horrible happens to us. It's kind of nice to remember that it's true for all of us. We're all being visited by death, despair, grief. Okay. Okay. So that's, I think, the, the first thing. The sense of urgency we get from understanding this, the sense of community and coming together we get from understanding this, and the sense of calm, collectedness, and equanimity that we get from understanding this is the first lesson of Lord Bhairava. That's why he's terrifying. Okay. Now, the next thing is, what do we do then? What do we do to deal with this fear? Practice. So it's not enough to recognize that the world is terrifying. Now we're invited to do something about it. You know, um, Buddhism, they often say, is a deeply optimistic philosophy. It begins pessimistically, but it becomes optimistic. <laughs> yeah, and you could try to escape in any number of ways. Suicide, by the way, I talked about it a little bit today, but it's not that different, actually, in principle, from like getting drugged out or like getting blacked out drunk or like, you know, playing video games or watching TV. Notice that? All of our entertainment is a quest to kind of die to the reality of life. <laughs> They're all types of escapism. Suicide, of course, being one end of the spectrum, the most dramatic way to opt out of the actuality of life. But video games being a very mild form of that same thing in principle. Do you not see? Like all our attempts at drugging and drinking and entertaining oneself is all so many attempts to avoid actually doing the work of going deeper and finding that which is fulfilling. You see? Right. Anyway, let's go into this next part. So now let's say we feel this. We feel the urgency of this predicament that we're all in. We feel the fear of old age, sickness and death, which is even now knocking at our door and saying trick or treat, right? We feel that. So what do we do? Now we practice. Now we do something about it. So in one sense, spirituality starts off pessimistic and ends supremely optimistically. You could say Buddhism is not a pessimistic religion. It would be if like some French philosopher in the 1890s, if it stopped here, if it was like, okay, lecture done, everyone is thoroughly depressed now, please go and drown it in some bourbon. You know, you've heard the truth and the truth sucks. Like, obviously, if we stop there, that would make it pessimistic. But we don't stop there. We start there and we move way past that point. So now we come to the second bit of the lecture, which is why the tantrikas were practicing in the cremation grounds in the first place. Because of this, arguably, right? Because fear was such a big part of spiritual life, might as well face it head on. I'm reminded of a story with Swami Vivekananda. Once he was being chased by monkeys or baboons or something. I really want to hear why he was being chased by baboons. Um, Swami Nikolananda does not clarify that in his biography on Vivekananda. But in any case, our Swami Vivekananda is being chased by baboons. <laughs> I'm like, please rewind and tell me how that happened. What did he do? <laughs> but in any case, our story starts with him being chased by baboons. Now, a great yogi was sitting nearby watching Swami being chased by baboons. And the yogi says to Swami Vivekananda, turn around and face the brutes. And true enough, Swamiji had a realization. He's like, oh yeah, why am I running? He stops, he turns around. And I don't know, I'm picturing in my mind that he like stands in front of the monkeys. And the monkeys all run away. I mean, yeah, if I see Swami Vivekananda standing there, I'm out of the, I'm like, Audi 5000. And you know what? He did something similar with like a mad cow or a mad bull or something. He was with some of his Western disciples and a big bull was racing towards a woman. And he actually stood in front of her, arms crossed, challenging the bull. The bull went away. Isn't that crazy? He was like, he had that vibe, that bhava of facing his fear head on. 
right? Face the brutes. And I think that's a war cry that should echo in all of our hearts. Whenever we're afraid, you know, we should turn around and face those baboons because they're just baboons. They'll, they, I come from a country where monkeys are actually quite dangerous. So I know, don't actually prod them. But you see, face them is what Swamiji was taught to do. And he did it and they ran away. Okay. So what is a tantrika doing when she goes into the cremation ground to meditate on top of a bloated corpse? What is she doing when she wears a necklace of skulls? What is she doing when she spends a new moon night alone under a tree in the cremation ground? Well, she's confronting her fear. She's facing the brutes, so to speak. Now, I'm not suggesting that we actually go to cremation grounds. And uh, I'll tell you why in a bit. Okay, towards the, like, we're, we're getting to the end now. I'll tell you why in just a little bit. Um, but I'm saying this is in principle what we should do. So maybe some of you will go to cremation grounds, like just heed the warning at the end of the lecture before you take, before that's, you know, before you decide to do that. Uh, so hold up for that. It's coming up. But for now, in principle, what we're being invited to is to stand our ground, turn around and gaze at those things inside of us that are causing us fear and not self-medicating or running away in this or that uh, fashion, but instead just standing our ground and facing, facing the brute. What does that mean? It probably means meditation. Because the one thing we don't want to do is sit quietly with our eyes closed to actually look at what's going on in there. The cremation ground is not out there because you could be in that cremation ground and not visit the actual cremation ground, which is the new moon night of your eyes closed in silence. This is why most people need guided meditations. They can't bear the thought of silence. This is why most people need to meditate with others. They can't bear the thought of solitude. And this is why most people need to meditate with their eyes open. They can't bear the thought of going inward, truly going inward. See, So the invitation now is to go into the cremation ground, meaning set your timer for one hour and just sit there. If you're used to one hour, set it for two, sit there. If you're used to two, set it for three. It's terrifying, no? Aren't you scared of that? It's terrifying. I remember when I first sat down to sit for an hour, I, you know, used to like 10 minutes or so of meditation. I'm like, okay, now I'm going to do an hour of meditation. It was horrifying. And there was moments in there where I was like, I won't open my eyes. I won't open it. But like, I wanted to open my eyes. I wanted to scream. I wanted to run away. There was a pain in my knee. And I was like, my leg is going to die. Like, I'm never going to walk again. And, you know, um, a friend of mine, one Vipassana friend, he was saying, yeah, I really thought I was going to die. I actually thought I was going to die. It's just an hour of sitting there with your eyes closed. It, it goes, it happens. The bell will come but it feels like the bell never comes. Yeah, and we, we get so scared of sensation. I feel a little bit of sensation in my body. I have to like move around. I quickly jump from my seat. I can't sit still. Try it. Try to sit still for one hour without moving with your eyes closed quietly. Just for one hour, try it. You'll see it's horrifying. And we try to escape that in so many ways by shifting the body here, shifting the body there, scratching the face here, opening the eyes and looking at something for a while you know, taking a phone call, putting on Sadhguru's guided meditation. I don't know. We just, we need to do something to break up the silence, the solitude, the quiet, the darkness. We're scared of that. So Bhairava is the fear that prompts one to start spiritual life, but it's also the fear of spiritual life itself. There's something about spiritual life that really intimidates the ego, especially when it comes to meditation and uh, jnana yoga. Those two things, Raja and Jnana Yoga, can be very intimidating. Yeah, I like that. Emily's saying, you know, invite the creepy and sad shit and have a celebration. Actually, that's so funny. Maybe you gave me an idea. 
but I think I'll read a little bit from the Shiva Stotra Vali because that's exactly the sentiment that we get from Utpala Deva at the end of his text. So we'll close. Thank you, Emily. We'll close with Utpala Deva and we'll close with some Swami Vekanda. Maybe Amal, today will be the day when we read the Kali, the mother poem. Today might be the day, <laughs> Halloween. Um, but anyway, we have this, this sense like spiritual life is scary. It should be. You know, Yoda saying, and you will be. Are you scared yet? No, you will be. It is scary. And that also reminds us that it's not just us. We're not uniquely unable to meditate. We're not uniquely frightened of actual spiritual practice. It's not just us. It's everyone. Because that's the nature of spiritual practice. This fear is inherent in all genuine practice. For it to be practiced, you must be going out of your comfort zone. And anytime you go out of your comfort zone, the ego will feel fear. It feels fear at the unfamiliar. And you know, paradoxically, that's what makes spiritual life so rewarding. It's the adventure of it all. You know, it's really like taking the ring to Mordor. You're beset with a million and one obstacles and dangers. Dangers far worse than orcs. Like Gandalf says, there are worse things in the deep, dark places of the world than orcs, Frodo. Right? There are worse things in the deep, dark places of the world than orcs. And where are those deep, dark places of the world? Not necessarily Moria, but the Moria of your mind. You know, close your eyes and go in and you'll see there's plenty of adventure there. You don't need an escape room in downtown LA. Soon you're going to get an ad, okay? Spiritual seekers love him. Escape rooms hate him. Because I'm saying you don't need to spend money on escape rooms. Just close your eyes and you'll find an escape room. Um, The mind, it's a labyrinth in there. You know, if you want a maze, it's free. Just close your eyes. One hour. Sit. So Bhairava, he's not only the fear of the world, but he's also the fear inherent in all true, genuine spiritual practice. For it to be genuine spiritual practice, it must shift you out of your comfort zone. And when it does that, you will feel some fear. And it's not just you. So you can relax. That's part of the process. That's part of the process. We can exhale and relax into the fear of it all, recognizing that the same feeling of fear is also thrilling. It's that same excitement that is previously misunderstood as fear and is now recognized as excitement, as enlivenment, you see. So Bhairava invites us to be fearless when it comes to the very terrifying act of meditating, of confronting truth, of studying jnana yoga, of doing bhakti yoga. By the way, bhakti yoga is kind of scary too, right? Like talking to God can make us feel kind of silly or we're scared that we'll do it wrong, that we'll somehow like mess up the puja and then God will smite us or something. Bhakti can be scary. It can be vulnerable. It can be intimidating to sing songs to God. I mean, if public speaking is scary for many people, I'm sure singing is much more scary, especially when you're not like a singing type. It's scary. I'm not really a singing type. So it terrifies me every time I have to sing, you know? Bhakti is scary. Karma is scary too. What does it mean to just work for the good of the world for good sake without ever thinking about the outcomes? All the yogas, when practiced properly, should scare you because they all spell out the eventual demise of the ego. So that's why spiritual life is scary. And that's okay. That's how it should be. Now, the realization of spiritual life is scary for the ego. That's why Bhairava is called Bhirava, the one whose roar is the death of death. And I'm, I'm almost coming to the end now. So we're almost at the q and I, I know it sounds like I'm just going to go on forever. I have, um, but today I'm coming. I'm, I'm almost going to land the ship. It's going to be a crash landing, but it's going to happen. Okay. It's just God willing, it's going to happen in the next few minutes or so. <laughs> I'm almost done. So um, here, Bhairava, Bhairava is scary because to the ego, spirituality is scary 
Now, this is where we have to plug in the lecture from last week, Makali and the void, the void of Buddhism and Makali. The reason the Mahanirvana Tantra calls Mother Kali black, as we said last week, is because just as black absorbs all colors, so too does the void. Does the no thing, does consciousness absorb all names and forms? That's terrifying if you're a name and form. <laughs> and what is the ego but a name and form? So to the ego, it's terrifying. Thank God you're not the ego. So remember the metaphor we gave that Swami Swahanandaji liked? If you're down here looking at the stars, it's beautiful. But if you're up there looking down, it's terrifying. That's what this is like. From the point of view of the ego, spiritual life is terrifying. From the point of view of the spirit, it's beauty and bliss. See, that's why when Krishna shows Arjuna in chapter 11 of the Bhagavad Gita, his true form, Arjuna shits himself. He's like, oh my God, what is going on here? You've got fangs and sticking out of your teeth are all these soldiers and you're horrifying. Please just go back to being Arjuna. You know, so the form, the true form is so mind boggling, so mind blowing that it's actually quite terrifying because it sweeps aside all that you previously thought was familiar and true and good. Everything that you thought was you who you thought you were, who you thought other people were, what you thought this life was, all of that is drowned in the uh, ocean of immortality called Brahman, called Satchidananda, called the no-self. That's terrifying. So notice, Bhairava, he's Bhirava in this second verse, the one whose roar is the death of death. Roar, because it's kind of scary, but it spells the death of death itself. Because only the ego can die, right? Only the ego can die. Once the ego dies, you're immortal. That's the idea. And for this, you can insert all the non-duality classes we've ever had here and in other places. You know, we won't go into it. Let me close now with the wild flock of yogis. So therefore, the spiritual practitioner is invited to be fearless. Like Bhairava, they're invited to embody fear itself. In some sense, clothe themselves in it, seek it out as often as they can. And you don't have to seek it out, it will seek you out. And then be comfortable with it. So why are the yogis around Bhairava? Because they're comfortable with him. And they've become like Bhairava, in that sense, wild, wild. They're no longer tamed by their desires. You know, when we say we had a wild night out, I laugh. You had a tamed night out. You went and you allowed all of your impulses and passions to control you. That is not a wild night out. Do you want to know what a wild night out looks like? Sitting down, eyes closed, still not moving, no matter how much my itch, my knee is itching, no matter how much I want to go to the fridge, that's wild because I'm no longer tamed by my body and mind. My body and mind don't tell me what to do. I tell it what to do. That's wildness. You see, the only, the only wild person in the world is a yogi, Okay. That's why I'm dressed as a wild animal, Mrigu, right? Because we should all be wild, wild in the sense that we are perfectly in control of the body and mind. It's, it's, it's an inversion. The Mrigu is actually one who is given to his passions. So in Shaivism, a Mrigu, a Mriga, a deer is one who is just a wild animal and is not yet ready for spiritual life. So Shiva catches the deer like that. Shiva is like the huntsman. So I'm today dressed as the deer that Shiva is holding, right? Like Shiva catches the deer because he's trying to forcibly teach the deer to be a Pashu. From a mrigu, you become a pashu, meaning from a wild animal, you become a bound animal. That's good because you're binding yourself to a discipline. And through that binding of discipline, you become ultimately free. And then in the third verse, it says, you wander the cremation ground, which is really just this world, um, as Bhairava, free, wild-haired and ecstatic, beyond the pale of society, right? Because you don't meet, you're, you're now the eccentric Sufi, so to speak. Okay, I think I'll just leave it at that.
Like you're, you've become the eccentric Sufi. You've become outside the norm, wholly grounded, wholly loving, wholly spacious, yet not at all beholden to your cultural programming or your biological programming. That's what it means to roam the cremation ground of this world, ecstatic and free. So the thing about Bhairava is his eyes are wide open, his tongue is lolling out, and he's holding a bowl of blood, which we recognized in a previous lecture, is a symbol for the aesthetic rapture of being able to enjoy all of your emotions, all of your intensity intensity in a story-free way. When you get rid of your stories, when the ego is no longer a part of your experience, then your experience is just ecstasy, is just immediacy, is just intensity. That's what that bowl of blood represents. So to close, I'll read to you now. Oh my God, this is the horror stories. I forgot the horror stories. Do I have time for three horror stories? Hey, if you got to go, just go, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the horror stories. I promised you I would hear the horror stories. Sri Ramakrishna uh, was fond of meditating in cremation grounds. So he actually, like the tantrikas before him, sought out cremation grounds. In his native village of Kamarpukur, there were some cremation grounds um, where you know bodies were buried, where people were burned on funeral pyres, and most of the people in the village, rightly so, avoided these places. But when Sri Ramakrishna came back from the Kali temple in Dakshineshwar to spend some time with his family in Kamarpukur, he actually spent entire nights in these places, meditating. He would meditate there all night. Now, he would bring with him two jars of offerings, one for the jackals, the literal jackals, which we also do in Kali Puja sometimes. We stopped, but we used to in our temple actually bring some food for the jackals in the cremation grounds. Um, so, what is Amanda saying? Yeah, I know. I know that happens. We sometimes go all night, especially on like festival nights like this, right? When we're particularly fired up, um, good puja and all. Anyway, so he goes to this cremation ground with these two jars. He gives some food for the jackals. Good, Rowan. Who gets the other jar? Ghosts. So he actually brings a jar of food for ghosts. He brings them for the spirits and ghosts of that place. He's making an offering to the various ghosts who he recognizes as companions of Mother Kali. You see, Mother Kali and Bhairava, even Lord Shiva, even in his benign form, um, they're often depicted as surrounded by ghosts and goblins. They're like the refuge of these outsiders, these outcast kind of beings like vampires. You know, there, there's Holly. Holly is a beloved of Shiva. You can, <laughs> yeah, there we go. A wild-haired Dakini. <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is what shiva's like like crib looks like just like have 500 more of these <laughs> there we go yes exactly so that's what they, that's what it looks like in shiva's place right these wild-haired dakinis are dancing about um he's friend and refuge to all these vampires and outsiders and like kind of downtrodden spirits so anyway um shiram krishna feeds the jackals and he feeds the ghosts both of which are both of whom are companions of Makali. Then he spends the night meditating. Now, one day, um, his cousin, I'm sorry, his brother, his brother, Rameshwar, I think, came to find him. I forget which brother, not Ram Kumar, I think it was Rameshwar, came to find him in the cremation ground. He saw that he was leaving late at night, going to the cremation ground. So he came and he followed him. And then Sri Ramakrishna, from deep in the cremation ground, called out to him and said, Wait, brother, don't come any further. The spirits might harm you. I'm coming to you now. Something like that. Isn't that interesting? He's saying to his brother, who is a highly spiritual Brahmin, he's saying, you don't come any closer because the spirits might harm you. But they're not harming him. I wonder why not. No more words are said there. 
but he's saying he's he's testifying to the existence of these spirits and though he's comfortable sitting there all night meditating in the cremation ground he's telling his very spiritual brother not to come into the cremation ground lest the spirits harm him that's Sri Ramakrishna conceding that these spirits are harmful so before you get any ideas rushing off to the nearest cremation ground to meditate beware Sri Ramakrishna can do it but don't let us not overestimate our spiritual ability right he's able to sit there and somehow placate the ghosts and even benefit from their company. But Rameshwar, who himself was a very spiritual uh, adapter, he couldn't, uh, or at least Sri Ramakrishna thought so he couldn't. Okay, right? So that's one story. Now, another story is Sri Ramakrishna um, used to visit this woman, Golap Ma, and she used to visit him and all that. And she was very, very developed spiritual practitioner. You know, she was for 30 years as a widow practicing a Gopala mantra. You know, she would chant to Gopala baby Krishna. And uh, she would do this, like she would wake up at two in the morning, have her bath, start practicing at 3am. And then she'd practice all the way till, I don't know, seven in the morning. And then she would do like a long puja. And then it was crazy. The whole day was passed in spiritual practice. And she was alone in this kind of creepy, dilapidated sort of house, you know, and she would practice in the, in the wee hours of the morning, like Rohan is now in wee hours in the morning, creepy times to be practicing. She's practicing in those times and the house is like dilapidated. Anyway, Sri Ramakrishna comes there with Rakal and they're taking an afternoon nap. Now, Sri Ramakrishna wakes up from his afternoon nap and he sees in the corner of that house, a terrifying ghost, a terrible ghost. Swami Sadadananda reports, terrible ghost. And the ghost says, can you please leave? And Sri Ramakrishna is like, what's up? And the ghost says, look, we are ghosts. We live here. And we live off of the bones that those people chuck from that factory. We live by sniffing the bones. So we live, we're sustained by the scent of the bones. But since you came here, we're in horrible agony. So please leave. We can't bear your presence. So in some sense, it's like vampires going when the sunlight comes. Sri Ramakrishna and his vibe, his just deeply devoutly spiritual vibe was actually painful for these ghosts. So they came to beg him to GTFO just so that they could go back to being peaceful ghosts. You know, Sri Ramakrishna, interestingly enough, decided not to tell Golatma about any of this because he didn't want her to be afraid. Right? He didn't want to put it in her mind that there were ghosts there. So he just calmly got up, respected the ghost's wishes, took his towel, took his spice bag and walked out. That's it. Him and Rakal just left that day and decided not to stay. It's kind of sweet that he's kind to ghosts. I think that's nice that he's, he's kind to ghosts. I say that, and in our puja, we have Oma Pasar Pantu Te Buta, which basically means, by the command of Shiva, may all ghosts and earthbound spirits be destroyed. Right? We do that in puja. <laughs> Doesn't seem very ahimsa, but you know. Um, so that's the second story. The third story has to do with Ramakrishna's guru, Totapuri. Now, this is one of my favorite stories of all time, actually. Totapuri is a consummate Vedantist. He's a Naga monk, meaning he wanders about India naked. Much like Bhairava, he just wanders about on the fringes of society. And when he sits, he lights a fire and he meditates all day. He just practices spirituality and he's a man of samadhi and all that. So he's a non-dualist par excellence. Now, one day he's in Dakshineshwar. And by the way, the place that Ramakrishna meditates is kind of haunted. People are buried there. There's ghosts. Nobody will go there, even in the daytime. But he goes there happily. And once Hridoy tried to disturb him by throwing rocks to kind of spook him, and he was unspooked. He just stayed there and meditated. So this place is kind of creepy. It's eerie place. So here is Nangta, the naked one. Here is Totapuri, Shram Krishna's guru, sitting and meditating on Brahman. He's he's meditating on the non-dual absolute. And a ghost comes. Actually, a Bhairava. They call it a Bhairava. Fanged, scary kind of form. Floats down from the tree. From the tree, he comes down, he lands. 
and goes rah, kind of like Holly just did, right? And then um, Totapuri opens his eyes and sees Bhairava there. I mean, this creature, this ghost. And you know what Totapuri says? He says something like this: "Hey, who are you? Come, sit and meditate on Brahman now." And I think that ghost, even that ghost, got scared. The ghost was like, okay, okay, bye. No, but, but apparently in the story, the ghost came and actually sat down for a while. So he saw the ghost. He told the ghost to come and sit. Isn't it interesting? Very Buddhist, like inviting Mara to have tea or something. So he saw the ghost. He's alone with this ghost. He says, come and sit. The ghost comes and sits and he's sitting there. And then he says, come, let's meditate on Brahman together. Can you imagine the gall to invite the ghost to come and meditate with you? And then he, the ghost just goes, ha ha ha. He laughs and he disappears. He just like vanishes, right? The next day, Totapuri tells Sri Ramakrishna about this. And Sri Ramakrishna says, I too have seen him. He lives in the tree. So he's like a yaksha, like a tree spirit. And he predicts things. He like predicts things that will happen anyway. So Sri Ramakrishna also saw this ghost apparently. But despite them both having seen this ghost, they didn't abandon the tree. They kept meditating in that same tree. Once when Narin, later Swami Vekranda, was a young boy, he was climbing a tree. And in order to scare the boys away, the owner of that orchard said that tree was haunted. Narin was not deterred. He kept climbing the tree and he's like, oh, whatever. And it was too rational to be disturbed by stories of ghosts. And so much so that when Sri Ramakrishna died and the young disciples were looking for an ashram, for a monastery to start the Ramakrishna mission, the only place they could afford at that time was this like bombed out haunted house, the Baranagor Monastery. And they were happy to move into the haunted house. It didn't bother them at all. Okay, now my anecdote. Um, There's a beach house that I think is thoroughly haunted. And... um, it's my, my in-law's place is like kind of haunted and there's stories in the family about how haunted it is. But we don't, we didn't know about these stories. We were just there, but we did get a kind of a vibe, right? Like upstairs, kind of a beautiful family, loving family, just the previous owners, I think. Something spooky going on there. Okay, so we went to the house and, we're, and we were staying in an Airbnb, my wife and I, and we were staying in an Airbnb. And our niece, my niece was in that house though. So she was staying over in that house. Now she was sleeping in this room and late in the night, she opens her eyes and she sees a creature, like a young girl, you know? And the young girl apparently like rushed at her and she woke up terrified. She was horrible. I mean, she was like up all night. It was 4 a.m. or something. She was terrified. The next day she's coming to us. She's like terrified, you know? And so I say, here, let's, let's face it. Let's face the brutes, you know? So the next day, her and I go upstairs. We go up to the room. And I say, come, let us sit here and meditate. I say to her, I'm like, we're going to, but and by the way, it's like, like kind of sludge on the wall. And this is not a religious family, but they had placed a little Mary statue there in that particular room, which I thought was kind of interesting. Nobody will talk about it, of course. It's a super taboo subject in the family. But, you know, uh, just to kind of get over the fear, we're like, let's sit here. And then she's like, no, 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 fine. I'm, I'm going down. I'm like, okay, fine. Then I will sit here. I will meditate. Let's try to set an example for my niece. I'm like, I will meditate in this room. It'll be fine. And I'm remembering that Totapuri story, you know? So I'm sitting there <laughs> and I'm sitting and I'm meditating. And suddenly I feel the presence. You know, it's kind of like this angry, hurtful thing. And I bolt the fuck out of there. I like get up and run for the door and I'm out. I go down the stairs so quickly. I'm like, peace out. I don't want any part of this. And up to that moment, I was like, yes, I'm not the body. So my body can be harmed, but not me. Nor am I the mind. So my mind can be harmed but not me. And I'm sitting in something like Vedantic tranquility until the presence was felt. Then all the Vedanta went out the door and I was like, peace out. I'm going downstairs. I'm a bhakta now. Ma, ma, ma. <laughs> so I ran. Now, um, 
Months later, I was taking a walk with Swami Sarvapirandaji and I told him the story. So I said to him, Maharaj, I was uh, reading about Nangta, you know, and I really am inspired by the story of Kotapuri, just telling the ghost to come and meditate with him. And I tried to do something similar in my hubris, right? I tried to do something similar. Uh, but then, and I knew, I knew that the ghost could not harm my body or my mind. I'm certain of it. And I know that I'm not any of those two things. But then when I actually felt the presence, I ran. And you know what Swami Sarvapirandaji said to me? He looked at me very seriously. He looked at me and he said, it's good that you left that place. It's kind of interesting. It's, it's good that you left that place. There are forces in the world that are quite harmful. You should not seek them out. And that was kind of profound. Later, I spoke to my guru about cremation ground practices and whether I ought to be pursuing them. And he was like, no, 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 don't do any of that. You know, might as well interiorize it, esoterize it, do it in principle, which is, as we said earlier, to confront the darkness behind closed eyelids the darkness of spiritual life itself. So let's close with this wonderful, um, wonderful verse from Shema, not Shema Raja, from Utpala Deva, which to me is one of the most exalted of the Shaiva masters of all time. So I'm just going to chant for you this verse. It's verse 18 of the uh, Charvana Bidhana Stotra of Utpala Devi's Shiva Stotravali. Yes, I can't let you Amal, go without that poem. Okay, But first, this is Shiva Stotravali by Utpala Deva. I'm going to read you two verses in Sanskrit and I'll translate. Um, we're going to use Swami Lakshmanju's translation. Om Namah Shivaya. Sato vinasha sambandan matparam nikilam rasha eva me vodhyate nata tvaya sanghara lilaya. Oh, my master, at the time of destroying this whole universe, you actually teach us a lesson. And that lesson is whatever is created will be destroyed in the end, whatever has existed will be destroyed. It is all a dream except me. Only I am detached from this position because I am not born and thus I will not die. Whatever is born will die. This is what you teach through your play of destruction. O Lord, glorified and shining with the sprinkling of the nectar of thy devotion, having overcome the multitude of the nooses of the differentiated perception or of dualistic perception, inspired by the gathering of the ghosts of the sense organs with the lotuses of their hearts fully bloomed, having conquered the universe, thy devotees dance in ecstasy in the dark night of the illusion of Maya itself. Those heroes drink the liquor of thy devotion, goaded on by those nine ghosts of the senses, and they dance in ecstasy in the cremation ground. <laughs> Kali the mother. The stars are blotted out. The clouds are covering clouds. It is darkness, vibrant, sonnet. In the roaring, whirling wind are the souls of a million lunatics just loosed from the prison house, wrenching trees by the roots, sweeping all from the path. 
The sea has joined the fray and swirls up mountain waves to reach the pitchy sky. The flash of lurid light reveals on every side a thousand, thousand shades of death begrimed and black, scattering plagues and sorrows, dancing mad with joy. Come, mother, come, for terror is thy name. Death is in thy breath, and every shaking step destroys a world forever. Thou time the all-destroyer, come, O mother, come. Who dares misery love and hug the form of death? Dance in destruction's dance, to him the mother comes. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu Shri Bhairavar Panamastu Shri Parameshwari Arpanamastu